going to be back in Mark today, chapter 6. We're going to cover verses 30 through 44. So Mark 6, 30 through 34, and eventually I'm going to get there. Last week we worked through one of Mark's famous literary sandwiches and we talked about how the cost of discipleship is very great. We said that true life, life together with God, requires death to self. Uh, To say it differently, we, we said along with the Apostle Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Mark featured this concept last week by putting the beheading of John uh, in the middle of the sending out and the return of the twelve. John's death had come as the result of a wicked feast thrown by a wannabe king who spent most of his time winking at pretty girls and partying and, and trying to gain the approval of the rich and the famous and the influential while his people waited for a good leader. While they waited for a compassionate king. Today, Mark is going to put the spotlight on that awaited leader, on that compassionate king, by contrasting Jesus' ad hoc feast with Herod's birthday party. Mark wants us to know that, and this is our one big thing this morning, or the one real theme that's going to permeate the entire text, and it's what you can think about during the week. Mark wants us to know that Jesus is the shepherd king. Moreover, Jesus is the shepherd king who knows our needs, has compassion on us, and satisfies us. You actually have your outline right there in that sentence. Jesus is the shepherd king, and then part one, who knows our needs, verses 30 through 32, has compassion on us, verses 33 through 34, and satisfies us, verses 38 through 44. Before we get into all that, let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can know your joy. We thank you that you are wise and you are compassionate, that you're our shepherd king, that you know us better than we know ourselves, that you love us despite our failings, and that you are all-satisfying. How marvelous and wonderful it is to be called your friend, to be known as your family, and to be called by your name. Jesus, thank you for identifying with us and being our substitute by way of your perfect life and your sacrificial death. It's only by this limitless grace that uh, we can be who you've created us to be and do what you created us to do, to bring you glory, to enjoy you. So Father, let us image you well and fill the earth with your glory. Equip us for that. Give us ears to hear this morning. Melt our hearts with your word. And in your kindness, lead us once more into repentance. Father, grow us in grace this morning so that we might be those who express their faith through love and point to you. It's for your beautiful name I pray. Amen. Verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So they come back from their adventure on which they had been sent out, and they're telling Jesus everything that had gone down, all the miracles they had performed, the places they stayed at, the food they ate. It kind of reminds me of a bunch of friends sitting around a table, maybe in a tavern, and just retelling old stories and and just catching up. They're renewing their relationships with 
one another. But quickly, the tone becomes somber because as Matthew's account lets us know, this is also when Jesus hears about the death of John the Baptist. And now it's, it's easy to forget that John wasn't just a prophet, but he was Jesus' own cousin. He was Jesus' friend. I mean, no doubt when they were growing up, they had spent lots of time together, growing and, and playing. Jesus would have felt the pain of losing a loved one in addition to seeing in John his, his own imminent death. He recognizes something. He recognizes his need to be alone with the Father, as well as the disciples' need to rest alone with him. And so we read in verse 31, And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place. That's an isolated place. Don't think desert. For some reason, when I read this the first few times, I saw desolate, I thought desert. It's not a desert place. It's just kind of isolated. And there's actually green grass, as we'll read later in the text. And it's, pretty, it's a pretty, pretty place, right? Uh, it's just not a whole lot of people are there. And so it's more isolated. So come away with me by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure to even eat. So they're not even having time to eat here. It's, pretty, it's a busy season in life, working long hours. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So Jesus says to the disciples after they get back and they exchange a few stories, and they don't really have time to eat because there's still crowds around. He says, let's take a quick vacation what? Why? Because they need time for rest and relationship. Rest is important. It's not a sin for them to rest. And in fact, it would have been a sin for them not to. Jesus is teaching us a valuable lesson as well as them, that we must rest. It's how God created us, to have a healthy rhythm of work and rest in our lives. And like most things, this is easier said than done. It's a difficult pattern to establish, especially in contemporary society because of how connected we are to everyone and everything all the time. And I think Jesus may have said something like this today. Disconnect from the internet, turn off the TV, turn off your phones, and let's go camping by ourselves, somewhere isolated, without Wi-Fi. We're going to recharge our batteries and meet with God have true community with one another. When was the last time you took time off from the world and spent uninterrupted time with God in his word and in prayer? This week, be intentional about spending time with God. I mean, start easy. Just take 10 minutes every day. Read one of those shorter psalms like we just did this morning. That was the whole psalm, all of Psalm 4. And pray through it. If you don't understand it, that's where you can start. Lord, I don't understand this psalm. Help me to get it. If you're really up for a challenge, one of the times you can make it extended. Try to spend an hour in prayer. Jesus did it often, and he did often hours right on top of one another. Praise a lot. It's a pattern in his life. The rest that Jesus is calling the disciples to hear is aimed not only at recouping uh, their own, you know, just recharging themselves, getting ready for the rest of what's to come, but also at relationship. 
I mean, the first prerequisite of discipleship, after all, is being with Jesus. The life of the disciples is not only mission for Jesus, but mission with Jesus. If you're on mission without Jesus, you're doing it wrong. The enlisting of the disciples' services cannot usurp or eclipse their fellowship with Jesus. Fellowship with Jesus comes first. If you are neglecting your devotional life and still trying to go about the work of ministry, you have a recipe for disaster. Stop. Meet with the Father. Jesus will not allow the disciples to become so busy, even with their ministry, that they don't have time to cultivate their own relationships with him. I think we would do well to follow their practice. Make fellowship with God your top priority each and every day. I mean, relationships do not flourish when they're starved of attention. It's like asking, forgetting to ask someone to water your plants while you're out of town. You come home to brown leaves, dry soil, and wilted flowers. I mean, if your th- maybe if your thumb's as green as mine often is, that's what happens anyway. But, but uh, the same concept applies, right? It's also like this in our interpersonal relationships. I mean, if you don't talk to your spouse for a week, things usually don't go too well. Not in my house anyway. Healthy relationships require time and attention. If you do not rest well, and you're not intentional about cultivating your relationships, they will wilt and become unhealthily dry. I think we also learn a lesson here. The, the demands on the disciples and on Jesus are great. He's packing it into this short ministry. It's only three years of his life. He's packing his entire ministry into that. They're busy. I think this shows us the greater our demands in life, the greater our need to find time alone with Jesus and with those that we find important to us. After all, our relationship with Jesus is not solitary. It involves community in its essence. Part of loving Jesus is loving one another. Starts at home and it extends to the families around you. After all, we are a family of families. The greater our demands in life, the greater our need to find time alone with Jesus and others. He knows our needs, and our primary need is time to rest and to be with Him in relationship. So Jesus and the twelve are going camping and they're going to enjoy some much needed alone time with one another and they're going to make some s'mores, tell some ghost stories, stay up late, it's going to be awesome. But then there's a wrinkle in their plan. Verse 33. Now many saw them going and recognized them. They ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. The crowds that they're trying to escape see where Jesus and the twelve are going and literally they run to get there first. It is kind of comical. When I read this, I thought of this is probably the, the sort of thing a young mother goes through. Right? She gets the new baby to go down and she's like, finally, some me time. And then like, she gets to the bottom of the stairs and is greeted by the, the most recent art project of her preschooler. There's a crayon on the walls. Mommy, look what I did. 
maybe a third child that's not quite potty trained yet, brings her the little uh, squatty potty thing that they have, dumps some urine on the floor as they go along. Just when she thinks she has a few moments to herself, she has to take care of someone else. I don't know about you, if I were this young mother or one of the disciples here, my response would have been annoyance. Can't I just have one moment alone? Can I get just half an hour to myself? Read a book? Watch the football game? I need a break. Look, though, at how Jesus responds. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. Jesus' compassion always expresses itself. True compassion always expresses itself. His compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. He doesn't begrudgingly sigh. He doesn't demand his right to be alone. He he doesn't uh, delegate it. All right, guys, you guys take care of that. I'm going over here on the mountain to pray. Instead, he looks on them with compassion, and at the expense of his own needs, he serves the people. Yes, Jesus will get his time alone with the Father later. It's a priority in his life, and he'll stay up all night praying. He'll sacrifice sleep for it. But right now, he has compassion and he serves by way of teaching and, as Matthew's account tells us, by healing. It seems almost as if he welcomes the interruption. What does it mean for us to be like Jesus in this? In fact, I think that's a great question to ask as you read your Bible of any text. You say, what does this text teach me about God? And how can I be like him? How can I be like him in this? How can you be like Jesus in this? Do you welcome interruption? I don't do well at that one. Chelsea will tell you. Sometimes I'll be like in the zone, working on something in my office, and she'll come in to do something sweet, like bring me a snack, and I'll be like, get out of here! It's hard. Do you welcome interruption? It's important to note, too, that Jesus' compassion is never unexpressed. Every time we read of Jesus having compassion in the Bible, he acts. He never just feels sorry, shrugs his shoulders, and walks away. And sometimes that happens. We see a sad commercial on TV. It's like that Sarah McLachlan song playing. In the arms of the angels. You've seen that one? Oh. Oh, my show's back on. Similar to something that happened in uh, 19... 1994, a a South African photojournalist won the Pulitzer Prize for his picture depicting the 1993 famine in the Sudan. The picture features a toddler barely alive crawling towards a feeding center. And right behind him in the picture is a hooded vulture patiently waiting for the inevitable. If you haven't you haven't seen it you can probably just google famine and vulture and it'll show up but i've also attached it to my manuscript if you want to get at it that way later but the photograph is is paralyzing i mean it stops me in my tracks and it makes my stomach turn every time i see it and the reason I, I bring it up here is because after this picture was published and the photojournalist won the pulitzer he was asked hard questions Many were asking, 
What became of this starving child? How did you help? And to his own and everyone else's horror, he answered, I do not know. I did nothing. I snapped the picture and I walked away. Sure, others were around to encourage him in that venture. Don't touch him, you'll get diseases. He had sympathy on the child's situation. But then his program came back on. He walked away. That's not compassion. How are you doing this? What need are you aware of or saddened by and are ignoring? Who are you feeling for and simply walking away from? Jesus doesn't just feel for people. He's deeply moved with compassion, and his compassion expresses itself. He works to make them well. His compassion trumps selfishness. What about for you? Does compassion trump selfishness? How will you be involved in aiding those that need help? Jesus acts with compassion, and so should we. We also read, they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, I don't know much about agriculture, but sheep without a shepherd die. They can't feed themselves, they can't protect themselves. If they get on their backs, they can't even put themselves back on their feet. Somebody has to clean them, somebody has to feed them, somebody has to take the bugs out of their wool get the thorns out that bother them. Somebody has to lead them to a safe place. Someone has to provide uh, water for them to drink. All that stuff. Sheep need a shepherd. And the description, sheep without a shepherd, is the common biblical way of describing people, the people of Israel in particular, when they have no leader or king. I mean, it's not by accident that the Bible often pictures Jesus as our shepherd and us as his sheep. Jesus is the Lord who is my shepherd of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Jesus is the rejoicing shepherd of Luke 15 who goes after the one lost sheep. He's the good shepherd of John 10 who lays down his life for the sheep. He is the chief shepherd of 1 Peter 5 who honors his servants. He's the great shepherd of Hebrews 13. He is the shepherd lamb of Revelation 7 who guides us to the springs of living water. Jesus sees the people without a leader, without a shepherd, without a king. He has compassion. And he utilizes the opportunity to teach the people that the shepherd king is here. But as usual in Mark, it's not the content of the teaching that's most important. Notice he doesn't record a whole lot of that for us. But the one who is teaching it, Jesus is the focus of interest here. He's center stage. As he heals and as he teaches and later feeds these people, they're going to see with greater clarity that he is the shepherd king that will save the world. He's the Messiah they've been waiting for. Verse 35, and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. 
send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Don't, don't miss what's happening here. There are a bunch of people in kind of an isolated place where Jesus and the disciples went to go camping to get away from it all. But the people don't seem to be going anywhere, and it's getting late. The disciples, perceiving this, I think, want to get rid of these people. And so they go up to Jesus, and don't miss this. They give him a command here. They command Jesus to send away the people. Let them go get themselves something to eat. They're telling Jesus how to handle the situation. Before I go further, I want to ask, do you do this? Do you try and tell Jesus what is best? God's way is always best, even if we can't fully understand it. And so Jesus offers a counter-proposal. Verse 37, he answered them, You give them something to eat. This seems outrageous or even ridiculous. There are like 5,000 men plus women and children here, and Jesus is telling the disciples to feed them all. Why? Why does he tell the disciples to give the people something to eat? I would like to suggest that it's to gauge their understanding of and faith in him. He's just empowered the 12 to do what he does. They've just been on a journey casting out demons, healing the sick, and preaching the gospel. The disciples had been doing miracles by the authoritative power that Jesus had given to them. Doesn't it follow then that they should know Jesus provides his people with the resources necessary to be obedient to his commands? Jesus provides his people with the resources necessary to be obedient to his commands. God's never going to ask you to do something for which he has not provided you the power. The resources you think you need, they might not be readily available. But what God knows you need, well, it will be accessible. Instead of believing and asking Jesus how to give the people food, the disciples respond with sarcasm. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Really, Jesus? Sure, let us uh, roll down to Walmart right quick here. We're going to buy a few thousand hungry man TV dinners and then haul them back for everybody to eat. It's going to be great. We'll we'll get right on that. I do wonder what would have happened if they would have just obeyed. All right, we'll give them something to eat. Show us how. You've given us the power before. Do it again. I wonder what would happen in our lives if we would just obey. Friends, Jesus will do things through you, things you can't even imagine, if you stop telling him what to do and listen. Are you willing to give God all that you are to do with as he pleases? Or are you telling him what to do? Stop talking and start listening. Verse 38, And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. And then he commanded them to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. It's reminiscent of how Moses fed Israel in the wilderness. John's account's also helpful here for our understanding. He writes this, One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon's, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? 
Jesus said, had the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down about, about 5,000 in number. So, so check it out. The disciples offered to run out and to buy the hungry man dinners for everybody. And Jesus says, that's not a great idea. Go, how much food do we have? And they come back with a young boy's like Lunchable. You've seen Lunchables at the store, right? They're for like elementary kids. They have the little stick things in there, usually some cheese. I could eat like 20 of them, I feel like. But that's, that's what's going on here. There's, there's just a few, some fish. It's dried, probably like sardines. And some, some cracker-like bread. It's a first-century Lunchable, if you will. The five loaves and the, and the two fish are enough to feed one young child. There are, Mark tells us in verse 44, 5,000 men there. And that's just the men Matthew throws in besides women and children. Jesus will literally feed an army with a kid's lunch. This is amazing. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. Gave them to the disciples. And he divided the two fish among them all. Jesus, I think, does this miracle more for the disciples than for the people that were already there. He had already had compassion on them. He taught them. What is it for them to fast and miss a meal? Not a big deal, right? They'd have been fine. The disciples, however, are being trained to be Jesus' ambassadors in the world. And I think they'd lost patience. It was one thing for their time with God to be interrupted for a little while, but now it was almost night. The crowds needed to go away. They needed their s'mores. And so they tell Jesus to send away the crowds under the pretense of concern for their dietary needs. But their plans fail. Jesus will not give the twelve what they want and send the crowds away, but instead he gives them what they need, a display of his power and of his love. Jesus does this miracle to show the disciples and the crowd who he is. In Luke's account, actually, right after this miracle is performed, and it's the only miracle aside from Jesus' resurrection that's in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In Luke's account, right after Jesus does this miracle, you know what happens? Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah of God. Jesus does this, and then he says to him, who, who do you all think I am? And Jesus says, you're God! Only God could do that. Does this miracle to show him who he is. And he also does the miracle to demonstrate how they are to love people as servants. Servants that take what Jesus has given them and distribute it. Servants that distribute God's provision for sin throughout the world by proclaiming the gospel. If we're to be good disciples, we must remember who Jesus is and how he loved people with word and action. And although I do think the miracle is more for the disciples, it's most certainly also for the people here. In fact, in John's account, we learn that the people were about to try and make him king. Why? Well, verse 42, they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. The people wanted to make Jesus their king because they recognized him. 
as the shepherd king, as the Messiah they'd been waiting for, just like Peter. He's the leader that knows their needs, that's had compassion on them, and that can satisfy them. Now, there's a really, really poor interpretation of this text out there. It's really popular. I don't, I don't know how. But if you go home and, and Google or Bing or whatever you do, it'll show up, right, this interpretation of the text. It goes something like this. The little boy shared his lunch with Jesus, and this then inspired all the people to share all their lunches with one another. So that's the miracle. They shared Smarter people than me believe that as the right interpretation, but it's inept. It's born out of a presuppositional commitment to materialism. It's anti-supernatural interpretation. To put it bluntly, it's dumb. It's dumb for a variety of reasons, but most of all because it misses the point of the text. Jesus is the Lord of creation. I mean, the, the textual links are impossible to ignore. See, Moses feeding the Jews in the wilderness, organized the same way that Jesus has these folks organized. Just as God provided food in the wilderness for Israel, a desolate place, an isolated place, so too does Jesus provide food in this desolate and isolated place. Jesus is the true and better Moses. Just as Elisha fed 100 men with 20 loaves, Jesus fed the thousands with the five loaves and two fish. He's exponentially greater than any that have come before him. He's a true and better Elisha. These things serve Mark's purpose of showing us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that he's come. He's come and he satisfies all that follow him. All those present at this miraculous feeding eat and are satisfied. There are no picky eaters here. No complaints. Which I think shows you picky eating is a sign of sin and of the fall. MacArthur suggests that uh, this multiplication of food resulted in the people eating food that was uncursed. In his opinion, people were able to eat fish that was never born and never swam. He says the eating at this meal would have been like eating in Eden. How good must it have tasted? I think additionally this meal anticipates eating in the new Eden and is a sign of the coming restoration of all of creation, the making of all things new. This miracle, as others, is about the breaking in of God's kingdom through Jesus. I also want to bring your attention to something else here. Notice that even though the disciples end up distributing the bread, back in verse 41, they still don't understand all that is happening. Look, just, just scroll down there to verse 52, if you don't believe me. This is what it says. And this is about the disciples. They're the they that's about to be mentioned. For they did not understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. There they are with Jesus, they're distributing the loaves, but they don't have the whole picture, they don't fully understand it, but they obey. I think this shows us something very important, and we've said it before, it's not the strength or amount of faith that saves you, but the object of your faith. 
the disciples might not fully understand and they may have little faith, as Jesus says to Peter when he falls into the water. But the object of their faith, Jesus, is strong enough to save them. Even though their understanding is limited, they obey and they follow. You too might be like them. You might have little faith, little understanding. But little faith in Jesus is saving faith. And sometimes it's necessary for obedience to precede understanding. Sometimes we must just, as the old hymn says, trust and obey. Christians follow Jesus not because they're more enlightened than someone else. Not because we have all the answers. But because Jesus is worthy of our trust and obedience. And he says to all that will hear him, he presents the gospel. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in me. Will you believe the good news this morning? Will you believe it today? God loves you so much that he became a man. He lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died. So that he might be just in punishing all wrongdoing in Christ and justified in saving us and reconciling all things to himself. He's just and justifier. Jesus not only satisfies those he fed with the bread and fish that day, but he still satisfies all that will come to him and eat. In John 6, 51, he says this, I am the living bread, the bread of life that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Anyone who follows Jesus, trusts Jesus, by faith lives forever. Jesus is the shepherd king who knows our needs, has compassion on us, and satisfies us. He is the bread of life. Will you eat? Come then, weary, hungry sinner. You have nothing to do but to take Christ. Open your mouth and receive the food. Faith to receive what Christ provides is all that is needed. Isaiah 40, verse 11 tells us, The Lord protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms, and he carries them in the fold of his garment. Let him gather you. Let him carry you. Let him feed you. Let us come together to the table this morning and renew our covenant of faith. Covenant that says we are one with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And that we eagerly anticipate his imminent return. Let us come together this morning and announce that we indeed are those who eat the bread of life, who've tasted of his flesh and drank of his blood. Let's come to the table this morning. Amen.